We are continuing vision month. And uh, last week it was awesome to start talking about our vision, our new vision, to be a people pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in his story. And I love how the vision has brought inspiration. It's drawn a line in the sand of our journey and our season and said, enough distraction, enough disillusionment, enough discouragement. Let's get on with the business that God has put us on this earth for. Let's focus in on that. And I've loved hearing stories all week about people just being like, I need that. I need vision again. I've lost vision. Even this morning, I got a message from a wonderful uh, mom and about her and her family in our church. And she just acknowledged that over the last season, she's been distracted, that Sundays have been hard with small kids and she's got out of the habit and the rhythm of it. She realized that also just the things of God have sort of gone into the background in her life. And she was thanking me for the vision message. And this is the power of vision because in it, God spoke to her about the need to press into him again and that she's excited about growing again with God. She's excited about her purpose on this earth and playing her part in it. And she's excited for what God's going to do in the church. And so I'm excited if God, if the spirit of God is doing that in people's lives, man, come on, God, we need your vision. We need it so much. And over these next few weeks, we've got some exciting announcements. We're not going to be talking about any of those announcements today because we're going to keep it simple today. But we're going to be talking about our first value. If vision is where we're going, then values are about how we're going to get there. If vision is, is uh, you know, where, then values are about how. You know, vision is about what mountain we're going to climb, but values determine what it's like to climb that mountain and values and vision work together to shape the culture when we actually live them out. We're not just talking about values written on a wall. We're talking about values written on our hearts. We're talking about real convictions that we need to have as a church and we need to have as individuals if we're going to fulfill this vision in a godly way. Values act like riverbanks. When you have them, and if you have them nice and strong and in the right place, as the water flows, it can create a potency, a power. But when there's no riverbanks, when everything's important, nothing's important. And the only difference between a river and a swamp is how far apart the riverbanks are, how clear they are. And so as a church, we need clear riverbanks so there can be a flow of what God is wanting to do with us. Our values are omato matopono, our values, our core beliefs, our core convictions. And today, I'm excited to talk about our first one. It's going to mean something for each of us personally, but it's also going to shape who we're becoming collectively as a church. And so let's dive into our first value, which is this. If I had someone to do a drum roll, we could do that. That's about as much rhythm as I have. Our first value is love is aroha. If, you, if you've got a chat function, you could put love or aroha or a love emoji in the chat right now. And I'm hoping today we can not just discover again why love matters so much, but also how to become people of love in our lives. Let's dive into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 13 and 14. We're going to touch on there and then we're going to pull this apart. So if you've got your Bibles, wherever you're watching, grab those out so you can take some notes and read along and highlight some things. Some of these verses will be familiar, but let's be, let the Spirit speak to us freshly from them. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21, uh, 31. But now let me show you a way 
of life that is best of all. Now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. If I could speak of all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. And if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. Skip a few verses to the end of the chapter, verse 13. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And then we go to the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Let love be your highest goal. Let me show you a way of life that's best of all. Because if we don't love at all, it's just noise. It means nothing. We gain nothing. Here's what love's like. Love lasts forever. So let's let love be our highest goal. I want to say as people and as individuals, we need good values. We need values that will guide a godly life. And love needs to be the top of these values. Love keeps our vision clear and our motives pure. Love protects our intentions and our actions. It stops us just being noise or being nothing or gaining nothing. And I don't know about you, but I can think of many times in my life where perhaps I've done impressive things. But if I really was honest about the motives in my heart, they may not have come from love. And therefore, it doesn't matter how impressive they are. They're just noise or nothing and they gain nothing. And we don't want to be an impressive church. We want to be a church that is reflecting God's character to this earth. And so we need to be people of love who do everything out of love. It needs to be our first riverbank. It needs to be love to guide the flow of the Spirit in our lives because we don't want our church to be noise and we don't want it to be nothing and we don't want it to all mean nothing and it won't if we're people of love. I wonder how you size up people in this world. In our world, we've got all sorts of ways of sizing people up. Maybe it's by their gifts. Maybe it's by their talents. Maybe it's by the clothes they wear. I don't often get to preach in shorts, but here I am. Uh, maybe it's by the cars they drive or the money they earn or the role they have or the people they know. We have all sorts of ways of sizing people up. But God measures a man by love. God measures a woman by love. God measures a family by love. And God measures a church by love. It's the thing that counts for him. And if it's so important to God, if it's what he's really looking and evaluating, you know, we know in, in the book of Samuel tells us that man looks at the hysteria, but God looks at the heart. And if God's looking at the heart of who we are as a people, what does he see? Does he see love? 
And I know every single one of us loves a popular word and nobody's going to be listening to me going, I don't want to become love. I can think that we've got a consensus that we would want to be loving people. But how do we actually do this? How do we actually become love? How do we actually become not just the type of people that have to force a love response, but where love is who we are and therefore love is what we naturally do because I think that's what God wants. And I've got a few things. The first thing is, and there's not like some quick steps to become love. These are things that you have to be committed to over the journey of your life to become an ever increasingly loving force in this world. It's not quick things. They're not quick fixes. They're journeys. They're things to be committed to, to sojourn with, if you would. And the first of this is that we need to know love if we're going to become these people of love. We need to know love. And we need to know it on two levels, if you're following along with me. The first is, we need to actually have like a mental understanding or comprehension at a mind level of what love is. We need to know what love is and what it's not. Because there's a lot of things in our world called love and that we might be used to associating with love that don't meet the biblical definition. They're more likely to be likes or lusts. We use love in such a frivolous way that perhaps its meaning is slowly being or quickly being eroded in our culture. We have love for a woman or we have love for a man. We have love for food. We have love for music. We have love for the outdoors and we have love for God. And if we're not careful, we might miss what love really is. In our world, love would be more associated with feelings. Something you know it when you feel it. Or you can be in it, or you can be out of it. You can fall into it, and you can fall out of it. We talk about it as if it's something mysterious and completely uncontrollable. You can be love-struck. We talk about it in our songs as if it's sort of like the wind that you don't really know it, you can't catch it, but sometimes it just, it hits you. But that's not the type of love that the Bible is talking about. The love that you can fall in of or out of, this mysterious type of love, is not the love that makes a great marriage. It's not the love that forms a loyal friendship. It's not the love that creates a godly church. It's not the type of love that God has for us, and it's not the type of love that he commands we have for him and for others. The type of love that God wants for us, that he has for us, and he wants to be in us, is much more practical, is much more tangible, is much more achievable and controllable for every single one of us. And I think that is good news. John 15, 13 says, There's no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. Or in 1 John 3, 16, it says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. The Bible, the biblical word in the original translation of the New Testament is agape. That is the word used for love here. It's unconditional love. It's the highest form of love. It's charity. It's the love of God for man. And it's intended to be reciprocated man for God. It is in contrast to phileia, which is the Greek word for brotherly love, or eros, which is the Greek word for uh, erotic love, or felusia, which is the self-love 
as it embraces universe, uh, which is self-love. This agape love is universal, unconditional love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstance. I love that. One of the great theologians through the century, St. Thomas Aquinas said this, that love derives less from emotion and more from decision. He said love is a choice. Love is to will the good of another. We need to just pause here because if we're going to live by this value of love, this agape love, we need to first understand at a mental level that this love is within reach of every single one of us. It's practical. It's decisive. We're not saying, do we feel it? We're saying, do we will it? We're not wondering whether or not we're vibing it at the moment or we're falling into it. We're deciding today, will we live by it? And this is the type of love that will take you far in life. This is, as I've already said, this is the type of love that will build a great marriage. Sure, you need some eros in your marriage, but when eros comes and goes, you need agape to hold down the fort. You need agape to build great friendships and we need agape to build a great church. And so we need to understand this is the type of love where we're aspiring to be and to live by as a church. We don't just need to understand it at a mental level, as important as that is. We need to understand it at a relational or experimental, at a soul level, if you would. We need to understand it deeper than just the mental level. Ephesians 3.17 says this, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. That is a great promise. As you trust him, he'll make his home in your hearts. Your root will go down into God's love and keep you strong. So when we tap into God's love, it keeps us strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I want you to hear two things here. First, God wants you to understand his love. But second, he wants you to experience his love beyond your understanding. It's great to know it in our minds, but we need to also grow in the grace and the knowledge. We need to know it in our lives. We need to experience the depth and the width and the height and the length of God's love because this is how we grow into the fullness of Christ. 1 John 4, 7 says it like this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So as we get to know God, as we get to know him, not just about him, but as we grow in faith and relationship through our spiritual practices with him, we get to know love at a deeper, experiential, soul level of who we are. I love what Timothy Keller says about that passage in Ephesians 3. He says that Paul prays that the Spirit will strengthen his readers with power in the inner being. For what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
But elsewhere, Paul states that Christians already have Christ dwelling in them, like in Ephesians 2.22, and have already come to fullness in him, in Colossians 2 verse 9 and 10. But taken together, these passages must mean that while these things are objectively true of Christians, the Spirit can make the love of God so spiritually real and affecting that it changes how we live. We want, he wants us not just to know the fact of Christ's love, but to have the power to grasp the infinity and wonder of it. Are you hearing what Timothy Keller is trying to say? He's trying to say that, yes, in a sense, God has put a fullness in us, but in another sense, there's a fullness still to be discovered. And that it's in the tension of this relationship with God, of journeying in this fullness, that we can come to know more of God's love. And that is actually the secret to becoming love ourselves, that it might flow from him to us and through us back to him and to the people around us in our world. Dallas Willard said it like this, we should not try to love that person. We should train to become the kind of person who would love them. We should not try to love that person. We should train to become the kind of person who would love them. He's saying, let's learn to be with God. Let's learn in spiritual practices how to actually become love. So love is the overflowing response because we know it mentally and we've experienced it relationally with God. He also says this, our aim under love is not to be loving to this or that person or in this or that kind of situation but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life. Guys, the easy yoke Jesus talked about isn't about you going about your day this week through the tough circumstances and trying to love. It's about relating to God and to your life and to yourself in such a way that love comes from the inside out of who you are. And that might sound like a fairy tale and it might sound so far-fetched, but I have seen and I know the power of transformation in my own lives and I've seen it in others when we attend to God in the secret place, how he's able to turn us increasingly into people of love. And as we do this, we're able to reclaim our original purpose as image bearers with God. As we're able to become love, we're reclaiming the original purpose that Adam and Eve lost in the garden to actually reflect God and to extend his kingdom. So of course, God's community, his temple, his family, his house, his body on earth, these are all words the scripture uses for you and me, his church, we'd need to reflect the character and substance of God, which is love. He's so passionate, God is so passionate, but passionate about you and I becoming love that he would write this in 1 John 4, 8. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I love how Bob Goff said it. He said it, it's simple. I want people to meet you and me and to feel like they've just met everyone in heaven. Guys, this is our purpose on earth, that as we live by the conviction of love, as our guiding decisions are asked through the filter of love, that we would be people who love like God loves because we have God's love in us. And when people see us, they would see a reflection of God. There's lots of cultural challenges with this. There's the cultural challenge of materialism. Randy Alcorn said this, God created us to love people and use things, but materialists 
love things and use people. God created us to love people and use things. But materialists and materialism in general is influencing us. It's the world we've grown up in to, to love things and use people. And we've seen people all through the, the ages that have used people for power and have used people for fame and have used people for money and have used people for their own pride. And sadly, sometimes we can see it in the church too. Sometimes as church attenders, we can be people who are using the people putting on the service or making the church what it is for our own selves as opposed to being people who use things to love people. And uh, hopefully I'm making sense and not getting all tongue twisted there. We've got to be aware of the cultural challenge of materialism as we try to live out love. We've got to be aware of individualism that sees you and I separate and really sees me as most important or you as most important. John Ortberg says this, seeing suffering does not move me to act. If I think of the person as a him, remember the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they all saw the person. But when I think of that other person as a part of us or a part of me, then I'm moved to bless. Jesus may have been speaking quite literally when he said, Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you hearing what he's saying? Our individual culture says that we're all disconnected and it's only me that matters. But I think that doesn't move us towards love. But actually when we see ourselves as members of one body and when we see humanity as members of one race under God for whom God loves all of us, when we see ourselves as interconnected as we are, it moves us to love. Or maybe in our culture of tolerance, where tolerance is like a big value in our culture, we're wondering what love looks like. And Dallas Willard says this, Loving an enemy, who may also be our neighbor, is to do what is in our power for their good. But sometimes love means opposing what they want. We learn how to do this as we hear from God about it. So it's just loving... Loving and kindness. Kindness is a part of love, but sometimes we just sort of have like the overall value that was supposed to be tolerant and nice, but sometimes love opposes things. A parent would know this, that you love a child by opposing sort of certain behaviors in their lives that they think are good for them because you love them, you want the best for them. And this becomes more complex as we interact in community as adults, but there's still an element of the stuff that has to be wrestled with when it comes to love. Or maybe in our culture of insecurity, when many of us are afraid to be noticed or afraid to stand up or afraid to get it wrong, Rick Warren's thoughts would inspire us. He said, love never fails. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 13. If you minister out of love, you can never be considered a failure. I love that. What a motivating. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says, nothing you ever do for the Lord is wasted. I love these two ideas that we can get over our insecurity because if we're loving and we're doing it for the Lord, we know that it is effective. It lasts. It's not wasted in God. And we can never fail if that is our aim and our intention, our motive. Or sometimes we get confused about our roles in this world. Billy Graham said this, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict and it's God's job to judge and it's my job to love. Guys, to become love and to reclaim this purpose, we don't just need to understand mentally, we don't just need to understand relationally, 
We need to practice love. Let's return back to our first verse in 1 Corinthians 4. It says, love is patient and kind. I know you've heard it at weddings before, but it wasn't written for men and man and wife, although it will make your marriage better. This is written for you and me and the way we live together in God's church. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or rude or proud. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. How do we become this type of love? We need to not just know it, we need to practice it. And here in this description of love, we get a whole bunch of components of the type of things love is or love isn't. And the awesome thing is, is that in this is the secret to practicing love. And you know what they say, practice makes progress. So the more we practice these things, the more we will actually become these things, okay? So if you want to, you know, get good at hitting a ball in cricket or you want to get good at surfing a wave, you do it by practicing the elements that make up surfing a wave, paddling out, learning where the wave is, standing up, uh, riding the wave, doing the different turns. As we practice these different components, we actually become better surfers. And as we practice the different components of love, we become more loving. Obviously, in God's grace, uh, you know, Dallas Willard has the famous line, God's not opposed to our effort. He's opposed to earning. And this is the practical way that we can pursue the way of Jesus and play our part in his story. So how would we practice? If love is patient, how would we practice patience? Well, we practice patience by every time we have the occasion to wait that we practice waiting well. We wait well in traffic. We wait well at the supermarket. We wait well when our browser won't refresh quick enough. We use those opportunities to become aware of God and ask him to help us wait well. And as we do that, as we practice that in the ordinary things in life, waiting for our family to load into the car to get to church, uh, you know, waiting for whatever, um, all of these things, we, we practice and we become more like love. How do we practice being kind? Well, maybe we make an intention every day to say something nice or to send a nice thought or word to somebody or to write a card or to give a gift. As we practice kindness, we are practicing the way of love. If love's not jealous, how do we practice not being jealous? Well, we celebrate others whom we're tempted to be jealous for. Uh, that's what happens when I see people doing things that I wish perhaps I was maybe at that point in my life or I see people's ministries or just be really honest with each other now see people's ministries at stages that I wish our ministries were at at certain times and I'm tempted to be jealous I have to use those opportunities to pray for that person to celebrate that person to write to them to encourage them because as I practice the way of not being jealous I become more loving and I don't know what that looks like when somebody gets a promotion, or when something happens in your sports team, someone else scores a goal and you didn't. The more you can celebrate them, the more you practice and you reform that part of your heart. Or maybe, you know, uh, how do we practice not being boastful or proud or rude? We, maybe we keep our mouth closed even when we have a better story than one of our friends is sharing. 
Or maybe we do what Jesus said, we go and be generous without letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing, and we just practice doing significant things, not for the fact that anybody sees it other than God, and that forms in us this humility that stops us being boastful or proud or rude, or we serve, we choose to serve one another, we choose to do things that are humbling, and, and maybe we would think are beneath our station, but we think of Jesus sort of... Um, example of taking off his robe and putting on his towel and we we practice putting on our towel and serving people and i love every week at church how business people clean the toilets and i love how ceos are you know standing at the door welcoming people and people are doing these these everyday normal things or amazing people are, are going around and praying for people or whatever it is or setting up chairs these are ways of practicing love if love doesn't demand its own way, how can I practice letting others have their own way today and out in my life? If love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, how can I practice not rehearsing those offenses, but releasing them and letting them go back to God time and time again and blessing the person that has offended me? If love means not giving up and not losing faith, what would it look like to practice enduring or holding on to relationships or holding on to fellowship as we, these are the practical things. That's why Jesus said, bless those who curse you or go the extra mile or turn the other cheek. It's why we should go and apologize and ask for forgiveness and celebrate when others get ahead because they're ways of us practicing the way of love. And the more we know it, the more we experience it in our communion with God, the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of it, the more we practice it, the more we will become it. Over the years, you know, people go church shopping and they come around to church and they ask all different sort of questions and they decide if they like this church or that church or curate or whatever it is. And one of the common questions or one of the things people want to know is what do we think about the the gifts of the Spirit. What do we think about the Spirit in the church? And, you know, we're part of who we are is certainly a charismatic church. But how, here's the question, how do we know when the Spirit's in the church? How do we know? Most people would test whether or not the Spirit's in the church by whether or not they see prophecy or healing or other miracles or these sort of like power gifts, if you would. But it's interesting, just as a side note, with that People can be operating in the gifts of encouragement, in the gifts of wisdom, in the gifts of service, and the gifts of generosity. But we normally don't measure the spirit based on those, what people see as ordinary gifts, which they're actually extraordinary. And I'm going down a tangent here. But the point I'm trying to make is, how do we know when the spirit's in the church? Well, Galatians 5.22 says this, but when the, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love. It goes on to say peace and joy and the other fruits of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love. We can know when the Spirit truly has His way. You know, when we sing in the, those worship songs, you know, come Holy Spirit, have your way, Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit. We can know when the Spirit truly has His way with your life, with my life, with His church, with Curate Church, when we become people who are growing in love. Because the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives of love. We've got to measure the Spirit's movement in our lives, not by the gifts, although the gifts matter, but we've got to measure it by the fruit. The gifts only exist for the purpose 
of producing fruit in people's lives. When I first came to, to, came to Jesus, I came through a church of Christ. Compared to Curate, um, you know, it's very different. We didn't have musical instruments. We didn't uh, have fancy buildings. We didn't have relevant sermons. And, uh, and, you know, we didn't have many of the things that people think are impressive. But man, I got to know God through that church. And I got to know him because those people had one thing, and they had love. They had love for God, and they had love for one another. And love is the most powerful thing. In the context of this verse, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, Paul's writing to this church in Corinth who are impressive. They've got everything amazing. They've got all the gifts. They've got all the talent. But he writes to them and says, let me show you a way of life that's best of all. We could do all these amazing things for God, but if we don't love, they'll just be noise. They'll count for nothing and you'll gain nothing. And he says, so let me show you what love looks like and make love your highest goal. So as we think of our values, we must be people who live by love. Just in our, our, our lounge room down there, we have two photos of Mother Teresa, some rare photos of her in her ministry, one from right at the start of her ministry and one from right at the end. And they're reminders in our living room of somebody who lived a humble, loving life and her, whose impact and example continues to echo into today. And she said this, we cannot all do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And I want to remind you, and I want to remind myself, and I want to remind our whole church that love is within reach of all of us. Mom at home, you can be growing in love. Dad, you can be growing in love. Son, daughter, business person, trade person, medical worker, teacher, single, young adult, youth, wherever you find yourself in this season of life, wherever you find yourself, love is within reach and love is the way that we're supposed to live in whatever context we find ourselves in. I want my life to count and I want our church's life to count. And so our highest value must be what the scripture says should be our highest goal and that should be love. We need to make every decision in our church through the lens of love. We have to go, what is the most loving thing to do in this situation? What's the most loving way to respond? When we're thinking about how we talk about one another, we need to say, what would love say in this situation? When we're thinking about how to journey through a season with one another, when we're thinking about what to do in our small group or in our team or in our life, we need to ask the question, what would love do? Because love is so practical as we've learned today. And as we spend time with him, and I hope that the vision is inspiring you to open up your Bible, to spend more time in prayer, to spend more time in silence or fasting. I hope you're enjoying Lent at the moment, a time of just pressing into him more intentionally. These, God's going to form this love in us. And as we pra practice it in the most practical ways, as some of the things we've discussed today, we become those image bearers and we reclaim our purposes in God. John 13, 35, Jesus said this, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I hope you're excited that our number one value is love because it seems to be of utmost importance to God and therefore it should be utmost important to us and our journey together individually and, uh, and collectively as a church.
I want you to love right on your, love, write love on your mirror and think of ways to practice it, even today and tomorrow. The more ways you practice it, the more ways you become it. Let's pray, and uh, thanks so much for tuning in for Vision Month Part 2. Heavenly Father, thank you for every person who's, who's tuning in right now or catching up on this at another time, Lord. We thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you that you were in control. We thank you that even amongst the disruption and the confusion and the wars, Lord, that you are on the throne, that you are faithful, that your love endures forever. God, thank you for your word that is teaching us the ways of love. Lord, would you help us to put into practice to the things that we've heard today? Would we be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock, who heard your word and obeyed it, Lord? Would you guide each one of us into how to work your word into our lives? And God, above all else, would we be people of love? Lord, would we be people who reflect your character to those around us? Lord, would you bless us? Would you give us supernatural grace and mercy in this love journey? Lord, we need you and we can't do it without you. We'll bring our effort, but we need your spirit, God. And so would you come on each one of us now? God, heal every sick body, mine included. God, protect every vulnerable person. God, we pray for your sovereign power and peace to be at work in the situation in Ukraine. Lord, we pray every refugee can find somewhere to settle and every vulnerable person can find a, a miraculous place to hide and to be well. God, we entrust them to you. Lord, help us to keep being a church that's pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in your story. We bless you and we're thankful for you. Bless all of the people listening right now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week in some shape or form for Fisher Month Part 3.